We are celebrating heroes this month, women who transformed America over the past 200 years, remarkable women of notable achievements as far back as 1776, from the fields of social work, science, politics, sports, medicine, law, and adventure. Many who were hampered by constraints we can't even imagine today. This is Laurie Johnson. Join me as we look back and appreciate what they contributed. Their goal was not money or notoriety, but simply a better life for children, families, society, and the environment. They broke free from the stereotypical female role. Their independent spirits have made a difference for us today. We stand on their shoulders and we salute them this month. Women's History Month, or shall we say, her story month. Our first lady is Mary Lyon, born in 1797 in Massachusetts. This remarkable young woman with modest beginnings fostered her lifelong commitment to extending educational opportunities to girls from Midland to poor backgrounds she started out as a geography teacher, which was acceptable work for women in her time. In her day, in the 1830s, college for women was unheard of. Medical opinion gravely insisted the intellectual strain would damage girls' delicate brains. She felt so violently otherwise, as she wrote in 1834, quote, it sometimes seemed as if there was a fire shut up in my bones, unquote. Traveling by stagecoach, she toured through New England, collecting money for her seminary dream. She was greatly influenced by Reverend Joseph Emerson, whose discourse on female education from 1822 advocated that women should be educated for a better life, rather than just settle to please the other sex. No donation was disdained as too small. Dollars and half dollars with prayer go a long way, she said. And in three years, she raised the needed $27,000. In 1836, she founded Mount Holyoke and settled in as its principal until her death 13 years later. She strove to maintain high academic standards, setting rigorous entrance exams, and admitted young ladies of an adult age and mature character. Although her indomitable drive had centered on this single project, she understood what she had achieved for women everywhere. After the Mount Holyoke cornerstone laying ceremony, she declared, the work will not stop with this institution. This university provided inspiration for many women's colleges that followed. In 1861, it became a four-year college. Today, it is at the forefront for education across the United States. She is remembered less as a geography teacher than as the founder of Mount Holyoke Female Seminary, which is now Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. It is the first independent institution of higher learning for women in the United States. In her short 52 years of life, 
this remarkable woman accomplished so much. Belva Lockwood said, I know we can't abolish prejudice through laws, but we can set up guidelines for our actions by legislation. Lockwood, born in 1830, married, had a daughter, divorced, and remarried the Reverend Ezekiel Lockwood, an American Civil War veteran who was a minister and practicing dentist. They had a daughter, Jessie, who died as an infant. Her husband had progressive ideas about women's roles in society and supported his wife's desire for legal studies. Unfortunately, she was widowed at the age of 47. She ran for president in 1884 and again in 1888 on the ticket of the National Equal Rights Party and was the first woman to appear on official ballots. Lockwood overcame many social and personal obstacles related to gender restrictions. Earlier in her life, Lockwood was a teacher and school principal, working to equalize pay for women in education. She supported the movement for world peace and was a proponent of the temperance movement. Lockwood quickly realized she needed a better education to support herself and her daughter. She attended Genesse Wesleyan Seminary to prepare for study at college. Her plan, as she explained to Lippincott's monthly magazine, was not well received by many of her friends and colleagues. Most women did not seek higher education, and it was especially unusual for a widow to do so. The legal profession has never been hospitable to women, but few have had more trouble scaling its heights than Belva Lockwood. For two years, law schools, one after another, refused to admit her, arguing that her presence would distract the male students. When a university finally allowed her in, and she was successfully completing all the courses required, her diploma was unaccountably withheld. Lockwood had to petition the law school's honorary president, who happened to be U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant, before she could obtain it. Then later that year, when Lockwood tried to bring a case before a federal court, she was denied because she was a woman. Before she could proceed, she literally had to persuade Congress to pass a special bill that would guarantee that right, the right of women lawyers everywhere to plead a case before any federal court in the land. By winning that right, Belva Lockwood became, in 1879, the first woman ever to practice law before the Supreme Court of the United States. Belva Lockwood was an American lawyer, politician, educator, and author who was active in the women's rights and women's suffrage movements, and remarkably, the first woman to run for president before women had suffrage. 
She had a productive life, dying at the age of 86 in 1917. Zora Neale Hurston said, Grab the broom of anger and drive off the beast of fear. Zora Hurston, born in 1891 in Notasulga, Alabama, was an American folklorist, anthropologist, and author who celebrated the African-American culture of the rural South. Although Hurston claimed to be born in 1901 in Eatonville, Florida, she was, in fact, 10 years older and had moved with her family to Eatonville as a small child. There, in the first incorporated all-black town in the country, she attended school until the age of 13. After the death of her mother in 1904, Hurston's home life became increasingly difficult. At age 16, she joined a traveling theatrical company, ending up in New York City during the Harlem Renaissance. She attended Howard University, then in 1925 won a scholarship at Barnard College where she studied anthropology, graduating in 1928. She pursued graduate studies in anthropology at Columbia University. She also conducted field studies in folklore among African Americans in the South. In 1930, Hurston collaborated with Langston Hughes on a play that never got finished, but was published posthumously in 1991. Her trips were funded by folklorist Charlotte Mason, who was a patron to both Hurston and Langston Hughes. Hurston published her first novel, which was well-received by critics for its portrayal of African-American life, uncluttered by stock figures or sentimentality. She published several other novels from 1934 through 1939. In addition, Bera Kroon, the story of the last black cargo, was released in 2018. Although completed in 1931, the nonfiction work was originally rejected by publishers because of its use of vernacular. It tells the story of Kudjo Lewis who was believed to be the last survivor of the final slave ship that brought Africans to the United States. For a number of years, Hurston was on the faculty of North Carolina College for Negroes, now North Carolina Central University in Durham. She also was on the Library of Congress staff. Dust Tracks on a Road, an autobiography, is highly regarded. Her last book, Seraph on the Suwannee, a novel, appeared in 1948. Despite her early promise, by the time of her death, Hurston was little remembered by the general reading public. But there was a resurgence of interest in her work in the late 20th century. In 1995, the Library of America published a two-volume set of her work in its series, in 1957, she worked at the Pan American World Airways Technical Library at Patrick Air Force Base. She was fired for being too well-educated for her job. 
Sadly, despite being well-educated as a writer and anthropologist, she had to take on other jobs to make ends meet in later years and forced to live in a welfare home where she suffered a stroke. Hurston died in 1960 at Fort Pierce, Florida. Her remains were in an unmarked grave until 1973 when novelist Alice Walker commissioned a marker reading Zora Neale Hurston, a genius of the South, novelist, folklorist, anthropologist, 1901 to 1960. Elizabeth Blackwell said, If society will not admit of woman's free development, then society must be remodeled. Elizabeth Blackwell, although born in England in 1821, her family immigrated to the U.S. when she was 11. Blackwell was not initially interested in a career of medicine. She became a schoolteacher in order to support her family. This occupation was seen as suitable for women during the 1800s. However, she soon found it unsuitable for her. Blackwell's interest in medicine was sparked after a friend fell ill and remarked that, had a female doctor cared for her, she might not have suffered so much. Blackwell began applying to medical schools and immediately began to endure the prejudice against her sex that would persist throughout her career. She was rejected from each medical school she applied to, except Geneva Medical College in New York, in which the male students voted for Blackwell's acceptance. Thus, in 1847, Blackwell became the first woman to attend medical school in the United States. Blackwell's inaugural thesis on typhoid fever published in 1849 in the Buffalo Medical Journal and Monthly Review, shortly after she graduated, was the first medical article published by a female student in the United States. It portrayed a strong sense of empathy and sensitivity to human suffering, as well as a strong advocacy for economic and social justice. This perspective was deemed by the medical community as feminine, Blackwell founded the New York Infirmary for Women and Children, along with her sister Emily Blackwell, in 1857, and began giving lectures to female audiences on the importance of educating girls. She played a significant role during the American Civil War by organizing nurses, and the infirmary developed a medical school program for women, providing substantial work with patients. Returning to England, she helped found the London School of Medicine for Women in 1874. She died in 1910 with an amazing medical legacy. Blackwell is notable as the first woman to receive a medical degree in the United States and the first woman on the medical register of the General Medical Council for the United Kingdom. She played an important role in both the United States and the United Kingdom as a social reformer 
and a pioneer in promoting education for women in medicine. Since 1949, her contributions remain celebrated with the Elizabeth Blackwell Medal, awarded annually to a woman who has made a significant contribution to the promotion of women in medicine. Hobart and William Smith Colleges awards an annual Elizabeth Blackwell Award to women who have demonstrated outstanding service to humankind. In 1973, Elizabeth Blackwell was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. What a remarkable woman. As a woman, I can't go to war, and I refuse to send anyone else. That's a quote from Jeanette Rankin, born in 1880 and growing up on her family's ranch in the Montana Territory as the eldest of seven children. She helped care for her younger siblings, perform farm chores, and maintain farm equipment. Her early life experiences working side by side with men in the Western frontier would shape her political views on women's right to vote. She graduated from Montana State University in 1902 and spent several stints as a social worker in San Francisco and New York. She then moved to Washington State, where she joined the women's suffrage movement, with Washington becoming the fifth state in the Union to grant women the right to vote. Rankin went on to work as a professional lobbyist for the National American Women Suffrage Association, traveling back and forth across the country to speak and lobby for women's right to vote. Her grassroots organizing efforts in her home state helped win the women of Montana voting rights in 1914. Two years later, Rankin campaigned for one of Montana's two open U.S. House of Representative seats. She ran as a progressive Republican with financial backing from her politically influential brother, Wellington. Rankin wasn't the first woman to run for federal office. In 1866, suffragist Elizabeth Cady Stanton launched a symbolic bid for a congressional seat in New York, while Ohio native Victoria Woodhull ran for president in 1872. Jeanette Rankin campaigned on social welfare issues, U.S. neutrality in World War I, and the right to vote for women in every state. She made history on November 7, 1916, when she won her election by a margin of 7,500 votes to become the first female member of Congress. Shortly after her term began in 1917, President Woodrow Wilson asked Congress, quote, make the world safe for democracy, unquote, by declaring war on Germany. Rankin, who held strong pacifist views, voted against the American declaration of war. Quote, how shall we explain to them the meaning of democracy if the same Congress that voted to make the world safe for democracy refuses to give this small measure of democracy to the women of our country, unquote. She challenged. 
For the remainder of her two-year term in office, Jeanette Rankin supported measures to protect women workers, mothers, and children. She was one of the founding members of the Committee on Women's Suffrage, which led the fight in the House of Representatives for a constitutional amendment that would grant women the right to vote nationwide. The 19th Amendment, prohibiting states and the federal government from denying women the right to vote, passed both chambers in 1919. Rankin divided her time over the next two decades between pacifist and social welfare causes. She became a lobbyist and speaker for the National Council for the Prevention of War from 1929 to 1939. As U.S. involvement in another world war loomed, Rankin once again ran and was elected as a representative from Montana in 1940. During her second congressional term, she was one of seven women serving in the House. Jeanette Rankin cast the sole vote against World War II, making her the only congressperson to vote against U.S. involvement in both world wars. The immediate backlash against Rankin's anti-war vote was intense. When angry bystanders threatened to do her harm, Rankin locked herself briefly in a phone booth inside the House Republican cloakroom. Later in life, Rankin spent much of her time traveling the world. She was particularly drawn to India, where she immersed herself in the nonviolent resistance teaching of Mahatma Gandhi. During 1960s, Jeanette Rankin became known to a new generation of Americans for her anti-war activism. In 1968, she led the Jeanette Rankin Peace Brigade, a protest march in Washington, D.C., of some 5,000 feminist, pacifist, radicals, and students to demonstrate against the Vietnam War. Rankin never married, though she maintained a lifelong close relationship with the noted journalist and author Catherine Anthony. Rankin died in 1973 at the age of 92. At the time of her death, she was considering another run for a House seat in protest of the Vietnam War. Jeanette Rankin's legacy is mighty. In the 1960s and 70s, a new generation of pacifists feminist, and civil rights advocates found inspiration in Rankin, embracing her efforts in ways that her generation had not. She bequeathed her estate to help mature, unemployed women workers. Her Montana Rankin Ranch was added to the National Register of Historic Places. The Jeanette Rankin Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization, awards annual educational scholarships to low-income women 35 and older across the United States. Beginning with a single $500 scholarship in 1978, the fund has since awarded more than $1.8 million in scholarships to more than 700 women. A statue of Rankin inscribed, I cannot vote for war was placed in the United States Capitol's Statuary Hall in 1985.
if women could go into your Congress, I think justice would soon be done to the Indians. Sarah Winnemucca, born in 1844, was a Northern Paiute author, activist, lecturer, and educated or school organizer. She was born near Humboldt Lake, Nevada, into an influential Northern Paiute family who led their community in pursuing friendly relations with the arriving groups of Anglo-American settlers. She is the daughter of Chief Winnemucca of the Paiute Nation and the granddaughter of Chief Truckee. At 16, Sarah studied at a Catholic school in San Jose, California. When the Paiute War erupted between the Pyramid Lake Paiute and the settlers, including some who were friends of the Winnemucca family, Sarah and some of her family traveled to San Francisco and Virginia City to escape the fighting. They made a living performing on stage as a Paiute royal family. In 1865, while the Winnemucca family was away, their band was attacked by the U.S. Cavalry, who killed 29 Paiutes, including Sarah's mother and several members of her extended family. At age 27, Sarah began working in the Bureau of Indian Affairs at Fort McDermott in 1871 as an interpreter. Subsequently, Winnemucca became an advocate for the rights of Native Americans, traveling across the U.S. to tell Anglo-Americans about the plight of her people. When the Paiute were interned in a concentration camp in Yakima, Washington, after the Bannock War, she traveled to Washington, D.C. to lobby Congress and the executive branch for their release. She also served U.S. forces as a messenger, interpreter, and guide, and as a teacher for imprisoned Native Americans. Winnemucca published Life Among the Paiutes, Their Wrongs and Claims, in 1883, a book that is both a memoir and history of her people during their first 40 years of contact with European Americans. It is considered the first known autobiography written by a Native American woman. Anthropologist Omer Stewart described it as one of the first and one of the most enduring ethno-historical books written by an American Indian, frequently cited by scholars. Following the publication of the book, Winnemucca toured the eastern United States, giving lectures about her people in New England, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C. She returned to the West, founding a private school for Native American children in Lovelock, Nevada. Since the late 20th century, scholars have paid renewed attention to Winnemucca for her accomplishments. In 1993, she was inducted posthumously into the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame. In 2005, the state of Nevada contributed a statue of her to sculptor Benjamin Victor to the National Statuary Hall Collection in the U.S. Capitol. Winnemucca's legacy has been controversial. Some biographers have wished to remember her primarily for her activism and social work to better the conditions of her people, while others have criticized her for her tendency to exaggerate her social status among the Paiutes and her assistance to the U.S. military at a time when they were at war with the Paiute. She has been criticized, as has her advocacy for assimilation of natives to Anglo-American culture, 
Still, Paiutes have also recognized her social work and activism for indigenous rights. Her book, Life Among the Paiutes, was published in 1883, the first known autobiography written by a Native American woman, and the first U.S. copyright registration secured by a Native American woman. This has been Laurie Johnson. Music by local pianist and composer Jennifer Grudenberger is gratefully acknowledged. This program is produced for KMUN in celebration of Women's History Month. You can find the podcast for this program at kmun.org.